Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. This morning, I was um, sitting in my study, preparing for tonight, and my son, who's 18, Sam, shouted through, Mom! So I thought, oh, went through, he said, Mom. He said, are you the speaker at Central tonight? And I said, yes. And he's on the phone to his friend, Theo. He's absolutely brilliant at inviting people to church. And he's like, Theo, he said, Central, it's like lots of really good music, and they usually have like really good speakers, but tonight it's my mum... And then I didn't hear what Theo said, and they've gone to Nando's. And I feel, I don't feel that's a huge vote of confidence. But uh, you can judge whether Nando's would have been better by the end. So, hello. It's very nice to be with you all. Really, really fun. Especially with the sun coming in. Isn't that nice? Lovely. All right. Do you know this? All of you are incredibly powerful. Do you know that? Do you feel that about yourself? None of you. Okay, well, by the end of tonight, I think you will realize that you are incredibly powerful. And you're incredibly powerful because you have words, because you can communicate. And the Bible tells us over and over and over that words are powerful. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to think about those words. And we live in a society with millions of words all the time, don't we? Tweets and posts and Snapchats and hashtags and I'm sure if I carry on I'm going to be go into the land of uncool. But we do and quite often our words are casual, they're quick. And yet how many of us have read a quick post, had a quick text, misunderstood or maybe understood and felt the impact of somebody's very quick word? Have you ever done that thing where you quickly email off something, quickly post, quickly, whatever. And someone comes to you and says, that was really hurtful. Yeah? And we didn't know. Words are powerful. And we're going to have a good look at that tonight. Let's start by bouncing into a great book in the Bible called Proverbs. We're going to look at a couple of really cool Proverbs. When I was in my church this afternoon, I said, let's look at a couple of Proverbs that are going to kick your butt. But I don't think I'll get away with that here. So I will just say, let us look at the book of Proverbs. Oh, and do you know what else I could do? I could pray for you, because you might need it. So Father, I thank you for everything that you want to say to every one of us tonight being said. God, you are good. You love us so much. And you gave us words. You gave us communication so that we could create life round about us. And I thank you especially, God, tonight for the one or two of us the one or two of us sitting here who know how hurtful words can be, the one or two of us that are dealing with those situations, and I thank you for freedom tonight, I thank you for healing, for release, that as my words go forth, you filter out any of the nonsense, and your words go out, and they heal, and I thank you for that in Jesus' name. So let's have a look at these. Proverbs 15 says, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Then in Proverbs 18, it tells us that the tongue has the power of life and death. I told you you were powerful. Wow, listen to that. Your tongue, what we say, what I say, what you say, 
has power to create life or to bring death. Yikes. It's really challenging, isn't it? My texts, my emails, my words, my communications can be a tree of life, but they can also be very harmful. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to have a look in the Bible because God has tons of stuff to say about this. Okay, you ready? So we're going to go into the book of First Thessalonians and we're going to go into chapter 5 and just read from verse 11 down to 18. And Paul writes this, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Wow. There's a lot of big stuff in there, isn't there? You could just preach for months on that alone. In order to get the full impact of this, I just want to give you a little bit of background. This book in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, is a letter. And it's written by a guy called Paul. And basically, Thessalonica is a, a city in Greece. It still exists, but it existed 2,000 years ago when this guy called Paul visited them and started to tell people about Jesus. Paul hadn't been brought up in a Christian home or anything like that. He had encountered Jesus as an adult and he'd had a radical conversion and he was passionate. And he comes to Thessalonica and he starts to tell them. And you know what happens? What always happens when the good news about Jesus goes out, people start to give their lives to Jesus. They start to follow Jesus and become Christians. And let's just have an aside for the moment, because Richard was right when he said, you read the book of Acts and you think, really? Because that isn't exactly our experience of life. If you haven't read the book of Acts, read it. And if that's your experience of life, we want to talk to you. But it doesn't match word for word with our experience. They tell people about Jesus, they become Christians. But actually that's happening all over the world, right now, today, tomorrow, the next day. It's happened all through history since Jesus was here that people have decided to follow him. Why do they do that? Like if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you could come and answer that question for me. But if you don't know Jesus, it's a jolly good question. Why do they do that? Is that a religious thing? Does it make them feel better? What's that about? Do you know what I honestly believe? I honestly believe when we really know and really understand the deal that Jesus has on the table for our lives, we actually have to be really brave to walk away and go, do you know what? No thanks, I think I'd be better doing life myself. Why? Why do I think that? Here's why I think it. Because I know the deal. The deal is that I get a completely clean slate. That all the stupid wrong, nasty, mean, hurtful, wicked things I have ever done, I get forgiven by choosing to follow Jesus. I get a slate so clean that I can go on to have a really close relationship with the God that created the whole universe. 
And not just have like a relationship, but I get adopted into his family. I become his child. That's amazing. And then, as if the deal wasn't good enough, I also get healing, and God promises that he'll walk with me every single moment of every day for the rest of my life. So whatever you're going through right now, God would be there. He'll give me all the advice I need. All I need to do is ask. And that's the deal. That's a really good deal, isn't it? Okay, there's like three people who think that's a good deal. That is a really good deal, isn't it? Yeah, you see, there you go. It's It's getting a better deal all the time. And that deal is there for us because of the things we were singing about tonight, because Jesus died in our place to take our punishments. So Paul rolls into Thessalonica and tells them what I've just told you. Perhaps not in exactly those words, but you know. And he's there for the estimate about six months. But something happens. And the thing that happened in Thessalonica is still happening today. And that is that an awful lot of people, when they really hear the message of Jesus, they have a passionate reaction. Some is positive and some is not so positive. So when I was 18, I first really heard who Jesus was. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so going after that. And I just went for it. I was like, I'm going to passionately follow Jesus. Do you know, Richard Dawkins is passionate about Jesus. He's just not very positively passionate. Yeah? He is passionately against. And what happened in Thessalonica is while one group of people said, yeah, we're going to go for it. Another group of people said, we hate you. We hate Jesus. And we're going to try and kill you. And things escalated and it became so violent that basically the Christians in Thessalonica said to Paul and his mate Silas, guys, you need to go. You need to go or you're going to be dead. We don't want you dead. We love you. And then what happens is this new group of Christians, probably just about six months they've been Christians. They've had a wee bit of teaching. They love Jesus. But now Paul's gone. Silas is gone. And they've just got to kind of cope. And when Paul writes this letter to him, to them, He actually says to them, I know that you became Christians despite severe suffering. So whatever the whole thing entailed, it was severe and they suffered. And actually, if any of you have read any of the other stories about Paul or any of his letters in the Bible, you'll know that Paul really went through it, didn't he? He went through it. He got like shipwrecked, he got stoned, he got beaten up, he got like like, left for dead, Now, if somebody like that tells you that what you're going through is severe, it's severe. That's what I'm thinking. So it was severe. So when Paul writes to them and says, encourage one another, build one another up, rejoice, give thanks, pray, be happy, be nice to each other. He's not just speaking to a bunch of people for whom life is nice, so be good people. He's speaking to people who have really paid really paid for the stand that they have taken for Jesus. I've got to think about why they would have done that. So here's a bit about what Paul says to them. Verse 11, he says, therefore, starting, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. So listen to that. He says, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. So think about who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a group of young Christ followers who are having a hard time. And he's able to say to them, carry on doing what you're doing, encouraging and building each other up. 
Now, I don't know how many of you are Scottish, but as a Scottish person, six months after I'd become a Christian, if my life was as anything as hard as their life, I'm not sure how encouraging I would have been to be around. I'm just being honest. I have grown up in a culture that is pretty negative. I just have. I don't know. Are any of you, how many of you are Scottish and have noticed that Scotland's quite negative? There's a few of us. I don't know, maybe the whole of the UK is, but I have not lived in Englandshire, so I cannot vouch for how negative you might be, and I'm not willing to say. But I have been immersed in a culture where we're quite negative, where people say, how are you doing? You go, all right. How's your week going? Oh, well, wait till I tell you. That's, it. That's what it's like. And these guys had, within six months, received something enough of Jesus and of his teaching to be able to encourage and build each other's up. So let's have a look at these words. Encourage, this word encourage, I love. In the actual original language, it literally means to call someone to your side, to call them near. So you're speaking and calling them in to the point that you encourage them. You draw them in. When I look at that, that word, I think of it like a verbal hug. If you like hugs. If you don't like hugs, you could think of it like a verbal manly pat. I don't know. Just whatever you like. <laughs> I just saw one or two faces when I said the word hug. Sorry about that. Sorry. I've got a 16-year-old boy. I know we do. Hugs. Yeah. <laughs> I know how it goes. Okay. And then that word build up. That word build up just literally means to build up. It could literally mean building up a house. And you know, when you're feeling scared, and I bet they were scared, what does it feel like when, you know, the person down the road's had their house burned down for being a Christian, and their kids have been bullied, and they're not able to go to school, and his business has been whatever. How would you feel? You'd feel scared. You'd feel unsure. You'd feel all sorts of things. And when I feel unscared and unsure, and I'm not certain, do you ever get that feeling like, you feel like your skeleton's kind of losing its solidity? Okay, that's just me. Well, then I feel in that moment, I know it's some of you, but you're like, like, you just feel like, I can't cope. I am overwhelmed. I can't do this. And we all know those moments in life. And when someone comes and builds us up, they literally build into us the something that enables us to get up and say, I'm not giving up. I am having another go. And the truth is God calls us into community and family because we do need him, but we also need each other. And he wants us to need each other. And what we need from each other when times are tough is this. And in fact, the tougher life is, the more we need to encourage, call in, call near, and build each other up. And you know, the brilliant thing about that word encourage is it's actually the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit when it says he's the comforter, he's the one who calls you alongside. So when you encourage people, you're being God to them. You're doing what God would do. And that is very powerful and very, very cool. And I know when, um, when Scott and I were first married, we, um, well, if you haven't been married, here's a good bit of advice. It takes a little bit of time to get used to each other. There you go. And um, it was a quick discovery that I have a lot more words than Scott. And when I'm upset, feeling a bit kind of anxious or whatever, none of that can be described in less than 3,000 words. That's just the way it is. It just takes time and it takes a lot of words. And my husband is a, he's a, he's a rock, but he's a man of fewer words. He's the kind of person who actually thinks before he speaks, which I greatly admire. 
I, I don't aspire to it, but I do greatly admire it. And it took us a little while to realize as I would be going, I'm so upset, and I can't cope, and I don't know what to do, and I'm afraid. And, I'm... and he would just sit there and sit there and sit there. And eventually I think, come on, help me here, help me. And what he's thinking, probably, I don't know, we need to ask him, there isn't really a solution, because there wasn't. What will we do? And eventually we both basically struck on an idea. This is all I need from you. I just need you to say, it's going to be okay, Faith. And so we tried that, and it works. So now that's all we do. 22 years later, it's working fine. Because do you know what? When I'm falling apart, there isn't a solution. Because if you knew me, you would know that if there was a solution, I'd already be on it. (laughs) And all I really need is called in and built up. And do you know what? If it doesn't work out, if the person that I'm hoping doesn't die, dies, if the business fails, if the child's sickness means I can't do whatever, it'll still be all right. So when he says to me, it'll be all right, it doesn't mean everything will work out the way I I want. I don't need that. I know that's not necessarily how it will go. But I need called in and built up. And how easy is that? And if you were a husband, that was a gift, by the way. That was free. It was a gift. Your wife may be higher maintenance than me, but that is not my problem. So, <laughs> and um, years ago, years ago, maybe about, I don't know, a long time ago, when Scott and I were maybe late 20s, we, had, we tried to plant a church. We were part of a big church, very like this, in Edinburgh, and we went out to Musselburgh with a church planting team, and it was all going to just be so fantastic. And do you know what? It was, and it wasn't. And a lot of things happened over the next few years, and we got to a point, our children are very young, haven't slept through the night in as long as I could remember, and the church was, there was no church, but it was all just gone horribly wrong, and Scott and I just felt like failures. We'd no money, we'd no sleep, we'd no church, we were like, this is a disaster. And we said to each other, do you know, I think bottom line, we're not called to do this church leading thing. No, definitely not. So so that's a relief. So I know what we'll do. We'll go and join a big church because we used to really like being part of a big church and we um, we knew someone who had a big church. We said, we'll just go and we'll just serve their vision because that would just be so great And um, because we're obviously not meant to be these people. And we were really, really discouraged. But we were thinking, well, that's it. The writing's on the wall. And then somebody invited us to this two days, I don't know, conference or something for church leaders. I just go, I don't want to go. And if you know my husband, you'll know these were horrible words. He said, no, I really feel that God wants us to go. And that means God wants us to go. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure I can say no to that. So we're driving there. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't want to go. I'm a fake. I'm not a church leader. I'm actually the leader of the biggest failure ever. <laughs> and that's fine. And I'm like, I want to move on past this. I don't want to do this anymore. Horrible. So we're in this thing, and I'm doing the faking thing, you know, the <laughs> faking thing. And I'm meeting all these people, church leader, yeah, I'm a church leader. No, I'm not. And, and I was cool with it, but I just did not want to be there. And then came up to us this lovely man. I don't know if any of you know Jimmy Dowd. I'll tell you what, if you don't, you should. You are not encouraged enough if you don't know Jimmy Dowd. And Jimmy's a great guy. He's been pastor at the Vine Church in Dunfermline for, I don't know, ever. And I didn't know him, I'd never met him. And he came up to us, to me and Scott, and um, 
I'd love to do his accent, but I do it really badly. Broad Pfeiffer, fantastic. And he basically said, you two are absolutely brilliant. You two are top quality leaders. God is going to do this and this. And I'm standing there. I started by thinking, just, just no. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking, just no. Whatever this is, just no. But as he spoke, something changed. It called something up in me. It built something, reconstructed something that I had let go of. And that was hope that my sense of call, that Scott's sense of call, that we had really felt strongly that we would let go of that. And suddenly there was hope that we didn't need to let go of it. There was hope. Because, you know, whether your dream is a social enterprise or a business or a PhD or a family or a marriage, whatever your dream is, when there comes the moment where you think that dream is finished, that is the toughest moment. And in that moment, because God had asked us to do that, into our life came somebody. And you know what? The power of his words in that moment changed everything. Well, I wouldn't actually be standing here. I wouldn't be standing here doing this if it wasn't for that word in that moment from that man. That's powerful, isn't it? That is powerful. And some of you might think, yeah, I need to meet someone like that. Think higher. You need to be someone like that. You can be that powerful person who changes somebody else's life. You know, Jesus said this. He said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Basically, what he's saying is, whatever's in your heart, what you really believe deep in your heart, that's what's going to come out. And for most of us, I better not say especially me, but I could say especially me. That's the problem. It's because I don't have everything sorted in my heart. Sometimes I open my mouth, especially because I speak so many words, stuff comes out and then I think, oh, look at that, that's horrible. Why did I... How many of you do that? Come on, seriously. Like, you, you post it, you tweet it, you say it, and then you think, oh, stupid. And yes, okay, one answer would be to speak less. But if you speak less, if you shut yourself down, how are you going to create life in the people around about you? Imagine what it would be like in Central if we agreed together that we were going to take on this challenge, that we were going to build up, we were going to encourage each other, we were going to speak well of each other and even about each other when we're not there and create a culture that is the kingdom of God culture where people are celebrated, not criticized where people are loved, where people are accepted, where people are encouraged and built up. And you know, there's no point in us waiting for them to do it or her to do it or the leaders to do it or whatever. We do it. You're powerful. What you say matters. What you say creates the atmosphere around you, changes the people around you. So if we fill our heart with negativity and criticism and judgment and horrible stuff. And if we kind of take care of those things, you know how you do, you know like when you've got a grudge or something, you're feeling a bit miffed, you sort of take care of it, like a wee sick pet. I hate them, I hate them because they were mean to me. They were mean to me, so I hate them. And uh, a <laughs> little sick pet. And the problem with that is then you open your mouth 
And it's no longer you, it's the little sick pet. I hate them, I hate them. <laughs> and it's not nice. And, you know, let's not talk about ourselves because that would be, that, it would just be like a little bit hard. But we all know those people. You know those people where every single time you meet them, they tell you exactly the same negative story about the thing that happened to them. I know none of you have done that. I certainly have never done that. But there are people out there who do that. It's boring, isn't it? Do you ever get to the point, this could be over-disclosure, but do you ever get to the point where you bore yourself? Sometimes I'm just having a rant about something, I think, right, even I'm bored. Even I'm bored with me now. (laughs) Yeah, that's the speaking thing. But imagine if we filled our hearts with what God has done and with what God has said and all the blessings that we have to be thankful for. In that passage in Thessalonians, Paul puts it like this. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul's not speaking about a few events here, have a praise party, do some some prayer, give thanks and go home. He's talking about a lifestyle. Listen to those words, always, continually. It's challenging, isn't it? Now, let me ask you this. Remember who he's talking to. This group of people who've been through like a really hard time. In fact, they're not been, they are in a really hard time. What would they rejoice in? You couldn't rejoice in the fact that the lady down the road's house is burned down. You couldn't rejoice in nobody going to that business anymore because he's a Christian. You couldn't rejoice in that. What would you have to rejoice in? You'd have Jesus. See, when you really know Jesus, when you fall in love with Jesus, when you realize who Jesus is and how much he loves you and how much favor God pours out in your life and, and how the great thing is you don't even just get that clean slate once. You then, if you're anything like me, go on to make all sorts of other mistakes and you get it again and again and again. And when you realize that, you've got tons to rejoice in. Pray continually. How do you pray continually? Does that mean you like stop everything Get on your floor and kneel and just stay there till you die. No. What it means is that I I am constantly aware that I am totally dependent on God. And so I will frequently be turning to him and asking him for advice, asking him for stuff and listening to him. That's what it means. It's that constant awareness. I need you. I need you. I need you. You know, like when you're going through something really quite difficult, you pray a lot more, don't you? Okay, that's just me too. But, and, I, and actually at the end of difficult seasons of my life, I often look back and think, I've learned something here. God was there every, every single minute, every single time I needed encouragement. So think about this. Think about thanks. We're gonna rejoice, we're gonna pray. Think about thanks. Some of you are not Scottish, so this may not be an issue for you. Scottish people, by and large, and I'm sorry if you're a Scottish person and this is not you, this could just be my family. We're not very grateful, we're not very thankful. Are we, really? How many of us, because this might not just be Scottish people, you've no sooner got one answer to prayer than you're busy worrying about the next thing you've not got? We're like, a bit like kids at Christmas, you know, we open up a present and we go, oh, that's fine. Oh, what have I got next? Oh, are there any more presents? And we find it hard to be thankful. And the problem with that is that thankfulness is a massive key. And thankfulness is just simply sitting and looking back and saying, remember when God did this? Remember when God did that? 
Remember when God did the other thing? Remember last time the money wasn't coming together? And God is basically saying to them, he's saying, if you can find joy in every circumstance with my help, and if you can be constantly aware that you need me, and if you can remember the good things I've done, it's going to change your life. Do you know why it's going to change your life? It's going to change your life because it's going to change your heart. And then I'm going to be able to be the person who can build up and encourage someone else because I'm going to be full of joy. And I'm going to be full of constant awareness of God and I'm going to be full of thanks. And if that instruction was given to a church in severe suffering, how much more perhaps does it apply to me, to you? And it is interesting when you, if, if you do read around and you read reports of Christians in Iraq and some of what they're going through. It is amazing. I would recommend reading some of Andrew White's stuff, some of his books. It's amazing how people find joy in the middle of trial. They're not, they're not rejoicing in the horrible thing. They're rejoicing in God. They're not thankful for the horrible circumstance, but they're thankful in the midst of it all. They're thankful for every little thing that God's doing. And it's interesting, I go out to Ghana every year. My church's got a strong link with Ghana. Their lives are so much harder than ours. And one of the things that happens in Ghana is that travel, oh my goodness, it's shocking. It's like a scary, scary experience. And every, but because of that, every single time you get in a vehicle, they pray. And then, and this is the bit that scares me, every single time you get there, they pray again. Thank you very much for keeping us safe. And sometimes I pray in between because I figure it might not all be completely covered. (laughs) Oh, yes, indeed. And every year, one of the guys who goes out with us, every year he says, Faith, I think we should hire a car and drive. I'm like, never going to happen. Never, ever, ever. He does every year. I'm like, it's never, ever going to happen. Never. Do you know, when I was in my early 20s, I worked with a lady called Christine. And Christine probably taught me more about rejoicing, staying close to God and being thankful in any circumstance that anybody else ever has. And um, Christine, she was paralyzed on the left side of her body. Her hand didn't really move and there was all sorts of disabilities and her speech was slurred and she did a number of disabilities because she'd had a cerebral hemorrhage when she was 18 and another one when she was 23. And after or during the the recovery of her second cerebral hemorrhage, she'd actually died for a significant period of time. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant to talk to because she actually met Jesus, went to heaven, came back. Amazing woman. And we were in this office together of about 70 people and I loved going to hang out with Christy. I just used to make excuses. Her job was not in any way related to mine. Um, And she did all sorts of research on like human fertilization and embryology and all sorts of stuff like that. And I was in the IT department, and she didn't really use a computer. <laughs> she, was, she was a bit scared of it. But I just used to make excuses to go and visit her. Oh, I'll just go and check on Christine's email, because she never, not that she ever opened one, sent one, received one. Because when I was with Christine, something came out of her that was different than anyone else I knew. Because Christine's life was not easy. It was so apparently not easy. And at 23, I was healthy, I was intelligent, I had a good job, I was married to a lovely man. And actually, I was afraid 
that I would lose those things. I was afraid. I would look at Christine and think, I would be afraid that my life would turn like yours. And I remember saying to her one day, Christine, I said, because I was really, really, really curious. It took me a long time to pitch up the courage to ask this. I said, Christine, do you ever ask God, why me? She didn't even think about it. She just turned straight back to me and she looked at me. She said, Faith, why not me? And in that moment, I knew what she meant. She meant, this doesn't affect me. I am not defined by my cerebral hemorrhages. I'm not defined by my disabilities. I'm not defined by the fact that I can't speak properly. I will not be defined by the fact that, you know, my quality of life is deteriorating. I will not be defined by this. I am defined by the fact that I am loved by the King of Kings. Now that is a powerful woman, isn't it? That is a powerful person. And that's the challenge to us. And um, as we finish tonight, I just want to challenge you. I mean, I'm sure the whole thing will be thought-provoking. But I want to challenge you because there's one person in your life that I really recommend you start with first. That you really need to encourage, you really need to help them. Because the problem with this person is that they should be your greatest encourager, but they may well be your greatest discourager. And they really need to sort it out. They are probably the first person that speaks to you in the morning and the last person that speaks to you at night. And you can never get away from them. Have you figured out who it is yet? It's you. It's you. Inside of every one of our heads, there's dialogue going on, isn't there? There's chat. Thoughts. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not up for this. I'm a fake and they're going to know it soon. I'm always going to be alone. No one's ever going to love me. I'm not lovable. I'm dirty. I'm broke, I don't know, whatever it is, I'm broken, I deserve to be, I'll never get a job, I'm not like everyone else, I'm weird, I'm crazy, whatever your backtrack is saying might be very, very discouraging. And the problem with that person is, as I said, we can't get away from them, but the great thing is about that person is you can become their greatest encourager. It's not going to be easy. If that, you know, some of those things I'm saying, if they are in the dialogue that you have with yourself, that's not necessarily going to change overnight. You can't just decide to change that. But the great thing about you is you can choose what you put into your heart. You can choose what you focus on. Because then when your heart begins to be transformed, because you are looking at what God says about you, then what comes out of our mouth starts to change. When we start looking at what God says in the Bible, when we start hanging out with people who tell us that we are who God says we are, that every one of us is amazing. Every one of us is gifted and talented. You have a package that is specific for the stuff that God wants you to do. You're not gonna be the same as anybody else, but who cares about that? You're only meant to do what you're meant to do. And when you've got that track, the God track, you're loved, you're accepted, I'm proud of you, you're really fantastic. I'll tell you what, I've done a bit of work on it, and it sure beats the track that says you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're no good, and you're not going to be able to do this. It does. It's worth working on. I'm just saying, it really is worth working on. And the power of your words to change lives needs to start with your life. I am not going to be the life changer that I want to be, the world changer that I want to be if I can't change this life. 
But the good news is it's entirely possible. Remember in James 3 where it says no man can tame the tongue? God knows that we can't do this on our own. And remember that God created us in his image. We are like God and God loves community. God doesn't want us to do it on our own. The reason that we're not very good at life on our own is because we're not made to be like that. You're not going to be able, I'm not going to be able to go home and just clean my act up. We're going to need God. And when we need God and when we feel weak, and some of you listening to this are like, I just, I just don't know if I can even begin to tackle this. And some of you are not, and that's good. But if you're sitting there thinking, the backtrack of my head has been t- telling me I'm a failure for 20 years. The backtrack of my head tells me I'm no good. How will I face it? Face it with God. God is able, remember that part of the package, part of the deal on the table that we buy into when we become Christians is that he is a healer. And for most of us, the most significant healing that's gonna happen is gonna happen in here. And it's gonna happen over all the course of our life. And it's gonna be great. And the only time that healing stops is when you put up the stop sign. If I go, no God, no more, He says, okay, fine, because he loves us. So I want us to think about that. We're going to do communion in a little while. And often when we do communion, we think about physical healing. And we remember everything Jesus did, and we remember that our sins have been forgiven, and we remember that our bodies can be healed. But for some of us tonight, we're just going to rejoice We're just going to go up to the communion table and just rejoice in everything God's done. And that is really where you're at. Brilliant. Don't be ashamed of that. That's totally brilliant. Some of you are going to go up to the communion table because this has just been the best week or the best month, the best year, and you've got so much to be thankful for. And you're going to go up to remember that Jesus is great and you're thankful. But then some of us are going to feel a bit differently and we're going to come up and we're going to say, God, I, I need healing. I need, I just don't know what I need, but I need like a miracle to help me deal with me because I want to be what she spoke about I'd love to be a powerful person that changed the atmosphere with my words I'd love to be that person but I just can't ever imagine it and so you need to come up to communion tonight the way so many billions of Christians have been coming to bread and wine for years saying Jesus I need you I need you and every single time we say to Jesus I need you he says here I am Here I am. Okay, so we're going to do some worship. Going to do some bread and wine. And just as we start to worship and start to come up to bread and wine, I just challenge you to be thinking. Where are you at? What's happening in your heart? What is God stirring up in you as I have been chatting? And let's just see what God does.